Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week, we're bringing you a very special programme, marking the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the creation by the UBS Optimus Foundation mere days later of the Ukraine Relief Fund, an extraordinary mobilisation of capital and a triumph of collaboration. With us to reflect on those origins, the great achievements since, and the prospects and imperatives for the future, are the CEO of the Optimus Foundation, along with the leaders of two inspirational local partners whom UBS has supported in their vital work on the front lines. We start by welcoming back to the programme Maya Zisvila, CEO of the UBS Optimus Foundation. Maya, good to have you with us as always. It's hard to believe really that it is a year on. Take us back one year on now from the launch of the fund. Tell us a little bit about about UBS's response at the time of the invasion. Yeah, no, indeed, it is hard to believe that it's already been a year, but we launched the Ukraine Relief Fund just days after Russia invaded to really try to mobilize and maximize the mobilization of our network of clients and employees and to provide a means for them to channel donations to organizations in a coordinated, effective and efficient way. And and we're really proud of having been able to do that in such a timely manner. Because we know that in situations like this, the most vulnerable are the ones that are most impacted, especially children. And so it's essential to respond as quickly as possible. And children are the ones that are facing school disruptions that ultimately lead to learning loss, trauma, which has an effect on children's mental health for years. So we wanted to provide both that immediate short-term response, but as well also looking at longer-term support for the most vulnerable across our core areas of health, education and child protection. We, in order to galvanize as much support as possible, we offered 100% match funding and the opportunity to support relief, recovery and resilience efforts through the UBS Optimus Foundation and through our trusted partners with expertise in these areas, but also with a strong presence in the region. So both working in Ukraine, but also those working in Poland, Moldova, Romania and other neighboring countries that were actually and are still receiving refugees from Ukraine. And another important point for us was really also to prioritize partners that are supporting local Ukrainian organizations that will remain in the communities for years to come. Yeah, it's an incredible and concerted and coherent effort. And that's so important. And we'll come on to the importance of those values. But just tell us, first of all, Maya, we've, I think, discussed before on this programme, this notion of collective philanthropy. Tell us a bit about the ways in which this uh, Ukraine Relief Fund, the URF, is an example of exactly that. Collective philanthropy powerfully in action. Well, listen, I think um, with 12,000 employees and over 10,000 clients, Uh, who have donated to our UBS Optimus Foundation Ukraine Relief Fund, I think it's actually a perfect example of collective philanthropy. And we even also teamed up with XTX Markets to significantly extend our reach and our donation matching donation program to make our clients and employees' contributions go further. Together, we raised more than $56 million to help those affected by the devastating war in Ukraine. UBS also covers all of our administration and management costs, meaning that 100% of the donations go directly to all of our implementing partners. We're currently supporting 19 programs through the UBS Optimus Foundation and have committed almost 30 million of those funds for relief and recovery efforts. 
And that pooled funding, what that really allows us is to be responsive and flexible to the needs on the ground. Um, so fast in deploying funds shorter term, but also strategic in also thinking about what funds are needed in the longer term when often, unfortunately, donor fatigue kicks in and media attention starts waning. Yeah, I think one really interesting point here is often it's it's how to allocate resources when a, a crisis happens. And often by its nature, these crises are unpredictable or they take people by surprise. But I know that the view of you yourself, Meyer, and your colleagues is that collective philanthropy is particularly important precisely when responding to crisis situations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we really believe that the most effective way of giving for maximum impact is collectively because that allows for coordination and collaboration and ultimately increases efficiency and impact. And by working collectively, we can actually reduce the duplication of effort and increase the efficiency of the, the response. And what collective philanthropy allows us to do is leverage collective expertise, but also join forces by pooling funding and joining matching campaigns like the one that we launched with the UBS Ukraine Relief Fund. The other thing that I think is important to note is while it's, it's fantastic to be motivated to give out of empathy and compassion, you know, collective philanthropy allows us not to stop there uh, because our, our heart can't always answer the key questions to make sure that our donations have the intended impact. So by, by, by pooling our resources and expertise, it allows for critical analysis to make sure that we can not only follow our heart, but we can do that smartly. And so what we encourage all of us to do, and as a philanthropist, is really to seek advice, to talk to your philanthropy advisor, talk to peers, talk to other experts, and leverage that the power of your network to make decisions that are good for you and ultimately good for the people that are recipients of the aid. And what we felt that might be helpful to provide that guidance to clients on how to react thoughtfully and effectively through humanitarian crisis is a publications that we launched that is called a guide for strategic philanthropic approach to crisis response. Because we, we strongly believe, as I just said, that crisis philanthropy is much like everyday philanthropy. You need a plan. You don't need to wait until the events happen until you have a plan in place. So we therefore think about how do you develop that strategy well in advance so that you can not only strengthen local systems so that you can be resilient in the face of shocks, but develop those relationships with key governments and stakeholders, deep knowledge of the local context that really put us in the best possible position to mount a very rapid and swift response to any crisis. Yeah, and you've already spoken in, in your remarks thus far about uh, the allocation of funds and some of the priorities, this importance of providing you know, immediate emergency relief, but also supporting these critically important longer term recovery efforts. Talk to us a little bit, Maya, next about the, the mechanics of allocating the funds that have been raised through the URF. Yeah, and I think that's a really important question. So we know that typically in any crisis, half of the funding comes during one stage, that response and relief stage, immediate response. But that usually leaves critical funding caps for that long-term recovery. Immediately, we start with emergency relief. And then what we did is, is focusing on recovery and resilience programs, working in direct partnerships with Ukrainian government and grassroots NGOs. So the purpose of that second stage is really to support the individuals and the families to recover after experiencing that 
acute crisis and trauma and help them rebuild their lives, restoring and strengthening locally capacity and building those systems in the medium and long term. And that also includes integration of refugees into, into host communities. So maybe some concrete examples in the immediate response we provided economic assistance, survival supplies, protection services uh, for civilians that were forced to flee. We really looked at also health-focused humanitarian aid, as well as mental health and psychological support services. Then we looked at education continuity, facilitating catch-up learning for the children that were really displaced. And we also looked at providing vulnerable children the support the social protection systems, including emergency interventions for families that are at risk of separation. Um, so that gives you a little bit of a sense of the type of funding that we deployed. And then maybe what I'd love to touch on is some of the criteria that we used when we thought about which partners to select. So we look at, you know, typically what you would look at when you select any partner to work with, you look at the organizational's capacity, their leadership, their programmatic track record. But in this case, we look at the track record in responding to similar crises, their capacity to absorb funds, and of course, their history in Ukraine and neighboring countries. We look at, can these organizations have potential to support in the short and longer term? Do they support local grassroots organizations that are really working with the communities and meeting the needs of the local communities? And then, of course, as we look at our portfolio, we look at, well, to what extent are our portfolio of, of, of partners complementary to each other, right? So that we're addressing all the, the needs that are emerging in, in the local communities. And just to reemphasize how important local grassroots organizations are to us, that is really a key criteria for us. And we've supported 62 grassroots organizations so far, either directly or through, through some of our partners. Well, yeah, you mentioned your partners there, and we're fortunate enough to be in a position to hear from some of them in a moment on the programme. But just tell us uh, about a couple of the examples of these local partners who embody some of the values that you've described, who can check off that list of, of requirements that you've mentioned, Maya. Tell us about some of the partners with whom you're already working. Yeah, happy to. So one of the partners that we're working with is called Street Child. They're working with locally based education partners in Ukraine to build resilience in the education response for internally displaced people by providing psychosocial support, but also informal education when schools are not anymore in place, providing education hubs where children can access also online learning with teacher support and attend catch up classes to close the gaps in learning when they were unfortunately forced to, to miss classes. And, and one of their local partners is called NGO Girls. They provide therapy and support to children and, and women. And they really provide that sense of safety, security, and stability for conflict-affected uh, children to make sure that they continue to have a positive impact, not only during the crisis, but, but afterwards, so that they can take and transmit their knowledge to some of these women and, and then they can transfer them to other locations to support then more children who have had uh, experienced trauma during the war. So that's, that's one example, Street Child working with NGO Girls. The second example that I'll mention is Teach for Ukraine. It is a local organization based in Kiev. They're linked to a, a broader international network. Uh, so they have the benefit of being local, but also tapping into international best practices. And what they do is provide catch-up learning and psychological support through a six to eight week tech enabled tutoring program. 
to students in grade five through 10 who were out of school because of the war. And then they also provide not only that academic support, but that psychological support that I psychosocial support that I was mentioning important to provide that education continuity and that mental health support. And they really work with the national curriculum and adapting that national curriculum to make sure that it is relevant in this new situation, in this new crisis situation. Absolutely. Well, we're going to hear from them uh, in a moment on the programme. Just before you go though, Maya, let me ask you a little bit about, we've sort of started off by saying it's hard to believe it's a year in. As the war enters a second year, and who knows uh, what what lies in store with this conflict as terribly it threatens to, to drag on and on. What does that mean for your approach? Presumably, the strategy has to shift and adapt. And that's, I guess, a constant dialogue that you and your colleagues are having. Tell us a bit about how you have to rationalise and make sense of the longevity of this awful conflict. Yeah, and I think, you know, the big benefit of having this collective philanthropy approach and this fund approach is that we're able to address critical gaps and remain flexible by really deploying the support catered to the situation and and be flexible. So it is awful to see that the conflict is constantly bringing more suffering, particularly to the most vulnerable children. And what we're particularly concerned about is the winter with the infrastructure not being in place to really support the vulnerable communities through the winter. And as you know, there's been increased attacks on really critical infrastructure that has had a awful impact on children and family during these cold winter months. The families are taking shelter in damaged buildings with with no heating. And so really for us, it's about working with our local partners to, to support the families through this difficult period by providing not only mental health and psychological and psychosocial support services, education continuity, as I mentioned, protecting vulnerable children and their caregivers, but then also providing critical support for, uh, you know, with with infrastructure. So as simple as providing shelter and heating and blankets, etc. So it's, it's really that combination of infrastructure support, as well as really that critical psychosocial mental health and education support and protection support for vulnerable families. We took a balanced approach where we're focusing really on our existing trusted partners, making sure that they also receive follow-on grants. So one example is the Global Fund for Children that can support that children through that, that winter, that tough winter, but then also looking at additional new partners as new areas of needs arise, and particularly looking at areas that, that tend to be underfunded. Uh, so we really feel like we can be flexible and identify those critical gaps and then provide that support. We're also particularly excited about a new partnership with an organization called Outcomes X that is channeling funding to grassroots Ukrainian NGOs. And through that partnership, we'll be supporting them to improve learning outcomes, improve the mental well-being of children, as well as also building capacity of smaller NGOs. And that last piece is one maybe that I haven't mentioned as much, but we feel like our role is also trying to support that ecosystem, that local civil society to become more resilient and, you know, be able to deal with that, unfortunately, the war that is not coming to an end. Maya Seesvilla, CEO of the UBS Optimus Foundation. Well, next, let's hear from Oksana Matiesh, CEO of NGO Teach for Ukraine, part of the global network Teach for All. 
Oksana is also a board member of President Zelensky's foundation supporting education, science and sports. Oksana, welcome to the programme. Great to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about what Teach for Ukraine does. It's doing critically important work, but tell us a bit about what the day-to-day looks like for you and your colleagues. Yeah. So before the large-scale war started, Teach for Ukraine was working on addressing the problem of education inequity in Ukraine. We were matching top graduates of Ukrainian universities with children in rural schools. They would be going there. They would be teaching for at least two years there, being inspiring role models and helping children to believe in their own potential. When the large-scale war started in the morning of 24, 1st of February, I remember it that day very well, because we were, you know, concerned about the safety of each other, of the safety of our teachers that were spread out across Ukraine. A few days uh, later, we launched the emergency response to focus on providing urgent academic and psychosocial support to our students, as well as teachers. Among first of our responses was to provide teachers with the trauma-sensitive approach to teaching, because suddenly the teaching and learning reality has become very different from what we have seen before, right? It has become the reality where every single child and every single teacher in Ukraine has been living through a trauma. So we needed to equip them with a very new set of skills and approaches to be used to still focus on providing education despite the war. Yeah, so that's uh, that to describe this in short. And one of our biggest focus so far has been on providing uh, the learning catch-up support for children who have you know, lost access to education because of the war or children whose schools were not able to provide any online learning um, because of the security situation. Well, well, yeah, and I was going to ask you about this because presumably the, the key challenge is ensuring... I guess you'd call it what educational continuity in such straightened circumstances, as you say, where people are living in many cases without adequate shelter, power, some of the, the very basic building blocks to get by to try and ensure continuity with their children's education is nigh on impossible. Give, give us a sense of exactly how enormous this challenge is. Well, let me let me try and, you know, take you back to, you know, when everything started suddenly in at, at the end of February, right? everyone has found themselves in a situation when you know the normalcy has stopped to be you know uh, to be we have stopped being in normal uh, reality uh, the schools were closed again but this time not because of the pandemic right this time because of the massive shelling that was happening all around the country for the first two weeks of the large-scale invasion uh, the schools were shut down but then the Ministry of Education um, you know has instructed schools to try and come back to online remote teaching as much as possible we we were among the first ones to try and you know be there for our students and the very first lessons that we conducted when the war started was you know something that for example i would never forget because that was the lesson when suddenly children started asking questions like what's the point you know in education when there is war i don't know what's going to happen tomorrow why do i need to study and, you know, so we had to face the enormous challenge on how to still, you know, persuade children to continue studying no matter what, because education is a strategically critical, uh, you know, sector for, for the future of Ukraine, because it's about the human capital that will be then rebuilding the country and that will be then shaping the future. 
So then we were trying, you know, to reimagine our education, our approach to education. We were trying to inspire children to study so that then later they would be able to get the profession. They would be able to earn money and donate this money to the causes that they care. And suddenly, you know, children started finding a very new sense in learning. It's a sense that education was like a, a lifeboat for them, right? Suddenly, when, when the war started, children lost their routines and they needed them, right? They couldn't go to a school because the school was not a safe space anymore. They lost their access to socializing, their access to friends. And this time, because, you know, not temporarily, nobody knew back then for how long it will be lasting. So for us, it was a challenge, you know, how do you motivate students to learn how do you make sure that they're that you can be taking care of their well-being when they are so far away from you, when they could be, you know, in in bomb shelters, when they could be on the go, on the move, you know, suddenly it was a very different reality. But for us, the number one priority was to support the well-being of a student, right? Because no matter where they were, all they needed at that time was a human touch, you know, somebody to talk to, to communicate to. And not necessarily parents were the best people for that because, you know, the parents were concerned with, uh, you know, where to go, how to protect their children, right? They mm -hmm. had different priorities. So we had to be there for them, you know, as sometimes their care caretakers, guardians, and, um, you know, even psychologists. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about this, because as well as that huge challenge of attempting to address educational continuity, you've spoken about it, this critical need to bring psychosocial support into the mix. And I, it's extraordinary because that presumably wasn't as prominent in your list of priorities, I guess, when Teach for Ukraine you know, began and before the, the conflict. That's another great complexity. But you must be very proud of how your colleagues and all those involved with Teach for Ukraine have managed to, to, to rise up and meet that challenge? You know, before the before the large-scale war, we were trying to focus on the academic excellence, right? First and foremost, we were trying to help students believe in their potential um, from the academic point of view. But when the war started, we saw that uh, we ran a small study among our students, and we saw that 75% of them were under the huge amount of stress, right? And you can't be talking about any academic progress when, when children and students are experiencing so much stress and anxiety and fear in their lives, right? So the number one one priority is to, again, help them cope with this unbelievable level of stress. And this is where the psychosocial support comes as a number one uh, priority. I'm proud not only of, you know, Teach for Ukraine's community, but also every single teacher in Ukraine, every single school leader, because these are, you know, also the real heroes. Just imagine you as a teacher, you also have your own family, you also have your own priorities, but now your most important role is to try and keep education alive no matter what, especially in the war, when education is such a big priority for, for children's well-being, because it should not be stopped even, you know, when there is a massive shelling happening. And suddenly a classroom, uh, you know, was not a classroom anymore and is not a classroom anymore. Now a bomb shelter, you know, is often used as a classroom. And imagine yourself being with children during one of the air raid siren attacks, when everyone is, you know, anxious, nobody knows what's going to happen. And your role and your task is to make sure that, you know, everyone feels psychologically safe, physically safe, right? And I think it's it's a real, it's a it's it's really brave and it's unbelievably resilient what what teachers in Ukraine, including Teach for Ukraine's, you know, community, uh, what all of us are doing in Ukraine right now.
Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure everyone would agree with that. Tell me, you you describe the challenge so clearly, Oksana. How important is cooperating, collaborating with other stakeholders, other people all around the world? We've seen this incredible outpouring of support for causes like your own and to support Ukraine from all around. Presumably that kind of support, like the kind of support that the UBS Optimus Foundation itself has helped to to orchestrate, that must be fundamental to address these problems, particularly because they have such a long tail. We don't know how long uh, this is going to go on for. And we know that some of the damage that's done, that the help that we need to provide to students to, to help pick up their education, you know, that can take many years. So Presumably that cooperation, collaborating with other partners must be very fundamental to solving that. Well, yes, absolutely. I think what Ukraine has done is we have inspired the world with our bravery and we have been able to win the war on multiple front lines because of the support of multiple organizations, individuals, institutions like the UBS Optimus Foundation, right? Teach for Ukraine was able not only to continue operating during the war, but also to scale up and grow our operations and impact thanks to the support of our partners, right? It's crucial to feel that you are being, uh, you know, supported on, on different levels, right? And, you know, collaboration and partnerships, it's, I would say this collective, if I can call it like even like collective leadership, uh, you know, for Ukraine, collective support is what has been, uh, you know, enabling us to achieve and impact so many children, thousands of children uh, since the the large scale war uh, started. So it's crucial. And, you know, every time when I have the opportunity, I always speak about, you know, how important this support has been and how transformative as well. If not the support from our partners, for example, you know, it would be extremely challenging for us to reach as many children as we could in the last almost 12 months. And this number is now more than 15,000, which we are also very proud of. Yeah, they're extraordinary numbers. And just to that point, are you working, Oksana, towards trying to ensure that in terms of the whole of the Ukrainian education system in the longer term, hopefully in a post-conflict scenario, but even starting from, from today, as now it drags into a second year, that that system can work to adopt some of the tenets and principles by which you're operating. Is that is that part of your strategy and, and your ambition to try and have that coherent strategic rollout through all of the uh, education system? Well, I anticipate that Teach for Ukraine will be playing a crucial role in rebuilding Ukraine through education. For us, it's extremely important to bring local leadership and uh, to be in charge of upbringing the new generation, right, of, of Ukrainians who will be working long-term on bringing the country back, you know, to, to prosperity, to the economic development, to success. And, you know, we're working in a lot of cases for this long-term perspective, right? For example, when, when the war started, we did not switch to immediate humanitarian help. We switched on what we were best equipped to do, right? Keeping education and providing education and providing this well-being for students. And this is what we are planning to do in the next, you know, months, in the next years ahead, right? Because the challenge and the need is enormous, right? Every single day we receive more messages from parents, from students thanking us, asking us, uh, you know, if we're going to be expanding, if we're going to be offering more, more education interventions, like one of our free tutoring project that we've been implementing with the support of the UBS Optimum 
Consumers Foundation, it's been a huge success, you know, and, and the long-term goal of that project is to impact the whole system, is to give the system something that the system can scale up, uh, you know, the, the rapid academic uh, support to children who have lost so much knowledge and so many uh, learning hours during the last year. But we are working for making sure that we can, you know, quickly catch up when the moment comes. And that moment we are anticipating will be coming very soon. Oksana Matyash, CEO of the NGO Teach for Ukraine. Next up, it's the turn of Yulia Sporish, founder and director of the NGO Girls, known in Ukrainian as Divchata. Yulia, a warm welcome. Thanks for your time today and for being on the programme. Yulia, we wanted to hear from you about the incredible work that NGO Girls has been doing for well, so many war-affected children across the, the, the region. Just tell us a little bit about uh, the origin story of NGO Girls, how it came about and why you're so passionate about the work that you're doing. Yeah, so basically before the war, we we like have core expertise in sexual education and mostly we worked with uh, teenage girls and boys uh, all around Ukraine. But after full-scale invasion, we we start to provide more wide range of services to women and children. It's basically we support women and children in need, and it could be IDPs, it could be uh, women and children from large families, single mothers, or mothers who care about kids with disabilities. It's uh, our main focus currently. And during the war, we extend our activities to more regions, to more people, and with UBS support, we do an amazing job in Odessa region especially, where we set up uh, child-friendly spaces. And you you know, like currently during the war, kids are so stressful. Uh, they have no social activities around because schools, they don't operate, they don't have uh, bomb shelters, for example. A lot of activities currently is online, so kids uh, don't see other kids. So it's uh, it has huge impact on their mental health. That's why project we are doing together with you so important for for kids, uh, not only in Odessa region because we also serve for IDP kids currently living in in Odessa region. Well, yeah, and I was going to ask you about this because obviously we're now one year on from the start of the invasion and there doesn't appear to be an immediate end in sight. And the longer these things go on, the more difficult it is, isn't it, to ensure that children in particular get help building these whole life strategies to cope with not just the problems they encounter on the ground right now, but as you said, the legacy of that impact over many, many years. Your work is so important precisely because you have an interest in long-term solutions. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Our main idea is to support uh, as much as we can mental health and well-being of uh, kids and mothers. So what we are currently doing, we provide uh, like uh, first psychological support for caregivers. So we teach them how to support kids uh, during this 
tough times. Uh, but at the same time, we provide individual consultations for parents and individual work uh, for kids. We have enormous amount of individual consultation from psychologists, from speech therapists, from art therapists, uh, for example. And it like we already can see this big impact because when we uh, start to work with these kids, some of them, they had regress on their speaking. They had regress in communication skills. They, of course, have a huge regress uh, in terms of educational. And, you know, before it was COVID, then it's war. And we have uh, already two years educational gap, like if you're talking about Ukrainian children. So what we are doing right now will impact all their future life because we not only support in terms of psychological support, we also try to provide them some long-term support in terms of uh, neuropsychology uh, support and neuropsychology rehabilitation during these um, hours they spend with us in our child-friendly spaces. Yeah, it's such important work. Can I ask you, Yulia, a little bit about your relationship with philanthropists and those people who support your work through their philanthropy? Because one of the interesting ideas, I guess, is that a different kind of philanthropy is maybe needed in times of immediate crisis, in a war when people's needs are very immediate. There's often an immediate need for humanitarian support, for example. Does it change how people should give and should support charities and other things through their philanthropic giving? Is it a different kind of philanthropy that we need sort of in, in an emergency compared to what we need in, in normal times? Uh, you know, it's uh, very difficult to, to answer your question because, uh, of course, right now Ukraine uh, has a so big gap in terms of economy, in terms of uh, urgent needs. But we should, every moment, we should remember that we not provide food, we provide like... Um, ability to earn money for adult and ability to be sustainable for families. So what we explain for our partners and for our donors, partners, like private partners, is that when we do something, uh, we like injured girls, we see on this impact at least half a year better, five years ahead. Because when you invest, for example, money in buying food kits, it's okay, it's very needed, but it's short-term support. If we are talking about set-up child-friendly space, it means this, this small community will benefit from this space for many, many years. And again, not surprised that Ukraine not so rich country and we have uh, a lot of problems even before war and we don't have so bright and so comfortable uh, spaces or kindergartens in Ukraine. So all this money invested right now during the crisis, during the war, will stay with us for, for many years, for a longer period. And again, this huge MHPSS support we provide right now. Uh, it's like shop window. We show what, how it should be, how it uh, can be. So we hope that after after the war will end, we will continue the development of this project in small communities and uh, just to settle some, some standards for these communities. Yeah, and tell me, what, what about uh, how you have to change strategy 
because of the unpredictable nature, particularly of the conflict, as I mentioned, we're sort of heading into the second year. It's an impossible situation. We don't know how long the immediate challenges will endure for. How do you and your colleagues, Yulia, go about adapting your strategy and, and adapting your priorities as the situation changes? Presumably, the fact that it is you're on an unknown time horizon, that must make your work even more complicated. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so anyway, we uh, like each year we had the strategic session for our NGO. And uh, last year, we before the invasion, we uh, we thought that we will do only uh, like educational events uh, and some development and some women empowering events. But of course, everything was changed. And now we had a strategic session already for the next year, for this year. And we decided that we will focus to strategic things like, again, we will uh, provide MHPS support for kids. We will support women empowering. We will give more long-term projects in our reality, even if it's war and it's unstable situation and we don't know what will happen next. But uh, we believe that... Uh, Soon uh, the war will end and we can support, like we can continue work on uh, children development. So we decided that uh, half of our team will uh, focus on emergency response and providing shelter support and humanitarian support and some evacuation projects. But the second part will focus only on long-term uh, and strategic development of kids and uh, women in Ukraine. So it means that we will keep expertise in sexual education, we will keep uh, expertise in reproductive health, in uh, and there is a college support of kids that happen women's and child-friendly spaces. So we just decide half and half. Yeah, and tell me a little bit about the nature of the partnerships that you've established, because obviously we were talking a little bit about UBS and the Optimus Foundation, other partners, of course, with whom uh, you've worked from UNICEF, there's various other global funds, all sorts of different groups from all around the world. That must have been a great source of pride and inspiration to you as well, Yulia, that this has galvanised such an incredible international uh, response. Presumably, that is critically important. And also, it's important in helping to solve the immediate problems on, on the ground. T- tell us a bit about the, the impact and the importance of collaboration of those partnerships. You know, like we are part of um, child protection cluster led by UNICEF in Ukraine. And we also, uh, like with UBS, we're working through Street Child UK in Ukraine. And we very satisfied that so many uh, bright partners come with, with help to Ukrainians. And it's also allow us to show that somehow we we are different. We are not like other countries because in Ukraine during the war we have very very good um, government relation on the ground. We have very active social services, and they try they try to support uh, people as much as they can. So, for example, opposite Syria, where is uh, only there is no government, only NGOs working, all or other crisis where there is no uh, government representative. In our situation, we work in strong commitment with government, with local authorities, with social services, with child protection cluster. So what is important that 
partners understands that it will be a long a long term story is that we should plan our project not for six months not for one year but we even start discussions for a long term after world development project for five years so it's quite important because uh, big partners big NGOs they can bring their expertise they can bring their like financial support but otherwise we also like Ukrainians and NGO can bring local context and together we can be more efficient we can spend money with more accuracy we can not duplicate each other since uh, the coordination between other actors doing something in ukraine so i think that with your support we will benefit not only during these tough times but after when we need to rebuild our country yeah, absolutely. Um, well, just finally, Yulia, tell me, how should people, if they're hearing your message, they're hearing this story, they're impressed and moved by the work that you're undertaking, what should people do to, to get involved? I guess the first thing is to go to Girls' own website and support your work directly. But how should people who feel like they just want to do more, uh, maybe they're outside Ukraine, maybe they're in the US or wherever they might be, what would you encourage them to do to try and uh, help move the needle on this situation? Um, the best solution is just to drop us uh, an email about I'm John, I'm living in London or uh, I don't know, in Portland, and I would like to support your your activities, what you're doing, and then tell especially what kind of uh, support you would like to provide. Because usually we have some requests, okay, I would like to support summer camps for kids. Do you have some ideas how I can support you? Or it's okay, we have uh, some ideas and we, we have a ready, ready project. Or somehow someone can provide us, uh, I don't know, with toys. I would like to provide toys for your uh, child-friendly spaces or I would like to I'm from a small city and in charge we decided that we would like to, to support you with this amount of money and we would like you to spend it for some you know, sweets or candies it's very easy we are very collaborative and uh, our, if our partners they want especially support some of our activities it's okay but somehow we also uh, need some general support in terms if we we should cover some expenses, ensure expenses in terms of some transportation or some delivering of goods or some new assessment needs assessment because we conduct continuously with talking to people and to try to understand what else uh, would be good for them. So the first one, if you just want to support our current projects and you don't care about any any kind of activities, you, you can push the button donate and send any amount of money you would like support. If you're a bigger, bigger supporter and you would like to donate more than $10,000 or euros, uh, you can write us mail of what kind of um, support for whom you would like to provide and then we will create special projects, especially for you. Or uh, we collaborate with private IT companies and they, for example, decided to spend their corporate budget for partying for some tablets for kids who is currently have only online education, they would like to buy for them tablets. So we have many, many different ideas. So if you would like to support it, just send us email. I would like to support you and we will discuss further. And that brings us to the end of this very special edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join our club, by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can also follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. 
you can discover more and find out how UBS can help you at UBS.com. And while you're there, do search for Optimus Foundation to learn more about the work that Maya and her colleagues are engaged in. Thanks once again to Maya and also to Oksana and to Yulia for their time and their insights this week. Do be sure to check out divchatter.org for more about and to support the NGO girls and head to teachforukraine.org to support the work of Oksana and her colleagues. We will have some further reflections on the impact and implications of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine as it enters its second year on this programme at the same time next week. And of course, as always, you can keep tuned to Monocle24 every day for all the latest. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.